After our annual one-week summer break, we are back in action and ready for a new year of the SSR podcast. Welcome back. It's always nice to take a little time off, but I missed sharing these bookish conversations about literary throwbacks with you. This week, the YA novel Beautiful Creatures takes center stage. Beautiful Creatures was published in 2009 and co-written by Cami Garcia and Margaret Stoll as the first installment in the Castor Chronicles series. While this book was a favorite for my guest, I had never read it before preparing for this episode, so you will get the full spectrum of the reader experience today. Beautiful Creatures introduces us to 16-year-old Ethan Waite, who wastes absolutely no time in letting us know that he hates, and I mean really hates, growing up in Gatlin, South Carolina. His family has recently been through some tough stuff, and he's sick and tired of his superficial classmates and the many adults in town who are obsessed with revisionist Civil War history. When new girl Lena Duchesne arrives at school, he has a feeling that things are about to change, and he's certainly not wrong. Lena has moved in with her uncle, the mysterious Macon Ravenwood, and bears a striking resemblance to the beautiful stranger Ethan has been dreaming about. As the two get to know each other, they discover connections in their genealogy, and Ethan learns of the unique complexities in Lena's family. It turns out that she comes from a family of casters, basically witches, and is anxiously awaiting her 16th birthday so she can learn if she will be claimed for the light or the dark. Like any fantasy novel, Beautiful Creatures involves quite a bit of world building, and we can't get into all the details in this intro or even over the next hour. My guests and I do our best to hit the most important points though, and we swap our thoughts on the universe that the authors have created. We also cover angsty narrators, the Southern Gothic genre, missed opportunities to dig into meaningful racial dynamics, slut shaming, weird conventions of the early aughts, iPods, and editing. For our first episode of year six of the podcast, I am thrilled to welcome Joelle Wellington as my guest. Joelle is a pop culture anthropologist, final girl, and the author of Their Vicious Games. Her childhood was spent wandering the main branch of the Brooklyn Public Library. When she's not writing, she's reading, and when she's not doing that, she's attempting to bake bread with varying degrees of success or strengthening her encyclopedia-like pop culture knowledge. You can find Joelle at joelle underscore welling on Twitter and at Joe Wellington on Instagram. Instagram is my home base for lots of fun behind the scenes and podcast news too. If you like what you hear today, be sure you're following me there. Instagram is a fantastic place to spread the word as well. If you feel so inspired, please take a screenshot of this episode now, yes, like right now, and post it to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag me so I can see it and share. You can also find SSR on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If, after all of that, you still don't have enough SSR in your life, I can pretty much guarantee that you will love being part of our Patreon community. Yes, Patreon contributions help me keep this one-woman show going, but SSR patrons also get access to bonus episodes, newsletters, reading recap videos, exclusive guest Q&As, and so much more. Get the details and get involved at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. This month in the SWR, that's Shit We Read Book Club in Patreon, we will be reading The Bandit Queens, and it would be so fun to have you join us for that. Don't be shy. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M. 
and use code SSR podcast when prompted to get a two month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. After developing a real Daisy Jones obsession thanks to the adaptation on Prime, I have been listening to the book on Libro.fm. Thanks to everyone who recommended it. I am really enjoying it. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Joelle. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you for having me. You introduced me to a new to me book for this episode. So I will say like I was aware of Beautiful Creatures as an idea, as a concept, but it came out in 2009. I was in college, so I was sort of like out of that YA pocket. I remember hearing about it more in 2013 when the movie came out. At that time, I was working in kids publishing, so I feel like it was sort of like a competitive title. All of the movie tie-ins were coming out. So I kind of knew about it and it was on my wish list for the podcast, but you suggested that we do it for this episode and I knew nothing about it. And then this big old tome showed up at my door and I was like, what is this book about? So before we get into it, please tell me everything about your history with Beautiful Creatures, what you remember about it, why you chose it, and why you're excited to dive into this reread. Okay, so it came out around the time I think I was 12. So I remember seeing this black and purple cover, being kind of obsessed with it. My family's from the South, and so I was like, oh, I am so into this. Like, I'm really excited. And so I picked it up. I read it in about, like, two sittings, and I was obsessed with it. And it's so funny because I never finished the series, but I'm, like, not a completionist. It's, like, really bad. I don't finish series. I read, like, the first two books, and I just loved it so much at the time it's funny now because like if rereading it I was like oh oh my god what is happening (laughs) but yeah I just remember being really into it and then I remember going to see the movie in theaters like and being like there on the first day I was really big on those YA adaptations I was in the theaters yeah I was ready I made my parents take me I remember I think I made my dad take me to this and he was sitting there like what am I watching what is this why am I here Yes, exactly. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. But then like, as an older person now, I'm like, I don't understand. What, what am I, I don't get it. Throughout the entire reread, I was like losing my mind because I was like, wait, 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 wait. I just didn't remember it, first of all, being so long. Yeah. I listened to it and I was like, because I'm just all over the place. So I was like, let me have an audiobook because I can't bring this big old book with me everywhere. Yeah. And I was just like, First of all, why is it so long? So much of it I didn't remember because it wasn't in the movie. Right, right, right. So I was like, um, there's all this extraneous information that I was like, "Mm, should you even be in this book? Like, what's happening here? And then, yeah, I just was like, kind of confused, but kind of obsessed at the same time. I'm actually like now thinking about, I'm like, maybe I should finish the series, which 
unlike me, unheard of, crazy. Feels like a big commitment too. If all of the books are as long as yeah. this one, like that could be a big chunk of your next year. But if you decide to do that, you have to let me know. If you can try to like time travel mentally back to when you were 12 and when this book came out in 2009. So we're going to talk more about like the bizarre experience it sounds like you had coming back to it. But thinking about your 12-year-old self, what do you think might have been the appeal of this book to you? Like now that you've come back to it, thinking about your experience, like being the first in line at the movies, what do you think might have appealed to like the young version of Joelle about this book? Oh my gosh, I loved Witches. Mm. I really, really did. It was, and there weren't that, it was like during that era where there weren't too many witch books, it was like lots of angels. Yeah. Like (laughs) (laughs) so many angels, some wolves. A little like some vampires, right. but very, very few witches. And so when there were this big witch book and I was like, oh, this is for me. Like I'm the targeted audience. Yeah. And I just was so, so into it. I really loved how it was from the point of view of a boy, which was also so unique at the time. Like I was like, oh my God, they're doing something so different. And then I also think it was like, this is around the time when I was reading House of Night religiously. And so I think it was like also the fact that it was like a duo authorship happening. I was like, oh, well, House of Night is written by a duo. So this has to be good because it's also written by two people. I was like so convinced of this. I don't know what 12-year-old Joel was thinking. And it was just like, I was such a big reader. I like stopped around high school because I mean, I think everybody stops reading around high school and then they get back into it as an adult. But yeah, I like stopped reading a little bit after this and I think this was during the time I was in middle school and it was like a new school and so I was like kind of shy and so I spent most of my time reading and I remember this being one of the books I saw in the library and I was like oh I'm always in here anyway because I don't want to hang out with people I don't know so yeah so I was just really really into it I also think there's something about and like I I still love really long books as an adult like I always joke that like give me 600 pages where nothing happens and I'll be very happy I would argue that maybe Beautiful Creatures could have used a bit of an editor in certain points, but we can discuss that later. But I think especially when you're a kid and you're a kid who just like devours books, like there's something so magical about seeing this like massive stack of pages in front of you and being like, wait, it feels like it's yours. You're like, this is all mine and I can spend like as much time as I want. I can read it again and again if I want. And then you discover that there are more books that follow up. Like It feels like such a gift. And when you're a kid and you have, like, let's be real, unlimited time, there's something just exhilarating, I think, about stumbling on something that's this massive. Like, it sounds silly, but I remember feeling that way when I was a kid, too. Yeah, it was just like, and I think during that time, I exclusively read really long books. Like, I think around that time, I also read A Great and Terrible Beauty, another chonker of a book, The Lux, a, like, historical romance YA huge yeah and I think all the books back then were like unnaturally large and I just was like I felt so great carrying it around because people be like you're reading all of that and I'd be like yeah I am hell yeah I am I am (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was super I was so into it like and even now I love long books now I just feel like I'm like oh I have no time to read them so it takes me forever yeah there are like few books where I'm like I sit here and read it in a day yeah that are that length and they're usually like romances where I'm like okay okay yeah but yeah 
Okay, so a few fun facts about this book and where it came from. And maybe you already know these facts as a super fan of Beautiful Creatures. As you mentioned, this book was written by a co-writing team, Cami Garcia and Margaret Stoll. It was their debut novel. It was written in 12 weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. I can tell by your face it's that you so didn't big. know. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking. No, wait, what? Yeah, take that in. Just <laughs> absorb it. I'll give you a minute. 12 weeks. And I, I get that they were a team. I get that there were two of them. But that's still, as somebody, like, that's a lot. That's just insane to me. No, that doesn't make sense. It's just so big. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm confused. Like, you're plotting it out. You're writing it. It takes me forever to write anything. <laughs> like, I, it, yeah, it takes me a minute. Yeah, yeah. So for 12 weeks is crazy. Even if we do the math and we're like, okay, so there are two of them writing it. If only one of them were working on it, it would be 24 weeks. That's still six months. And six months for a book of this length. And not only the length, like we keep harping on how many pages it is, but just like the depth of the book and the world building involved. I'm impressed by the 12-week turnaround. It was inspired by a dare, a bet that they made with seven kids they knew. And I, I didn't really find any more details about like who these kids were and what the what the bet entailed. This bet they made with seven kids. I wish I could say more details. Listeners, if you're aware of this, please do let me know. So yeah, they, they spent 12 weeks writing this book based on a bet. It was never intended to be published. And here we are. Years later, almost 15 years later, the book is out in the world, was a bestseller, and went on to inspire a movie that, while not especially beloved, like, still was a pretty big deal movie. It had a huge cast. It had little Joelle, like, dragging her dad to the movie theater. So um, you never know what can happen when you make a bet as an adult with a couple of kids and do something in 12 <laughs> weeks. That's, that's the moral here. <laughs> I'm just imagining them walking up to seven kids. You want to bet I can't write a book? Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Also, like, where are you running into these kids? Maybe they're, I don't know if they were teachers or something. I just, I'm sure there's a story there and I would love to hear it. Yeah, I'm just like seven random children. Hey, kids, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, what are the stakes? What? Like, what are we betting? That's like candy, <laughs> a puppy, <laughs> a horse. <laughs> so many options. No, exactly. I'm like, what? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that is how this this story came to be. And then of course, it's burned all of these follow ups. I think we should start by talking about the setting of this book. Because when it showed up at my doorstep, and again, I was like, whoa, this is a brick. I initially just thought it was like, you know, because I think back to the books that I'm aware of that came out around this time. And I think of Twilight, like I, th I think about the vampires and the angels, primarily, as you were saying. And then when I looked up the summary of it, like the first thing that you see is Southern Gothic as a genre. So this book really is in that Southern Gothic tradition with some witches thrown in. And it focuses heavily on this Southern setting of Gatlin, South Carolina. It's this town that is really committed to its Southern heritage, is really committed to its history with the Civil War. They're obsessed with Civil War reenactments. Pretty much everybody in town is like, this was, you know, the, the they're all just very into revisionist history, basically, mm -hmm. which I think is especially interesting to read about and to absorb in our 2023 times and the way that history is or is not being taught to our students. And it feels like our main character, Ethan, is very much a victim of like that kind of a school system that is like, no, we're going to teach you history the way we see it, even if it's not how it actually happened. So I just was like drawn to that kind of, I, I guess, politically, sociologically, like as a study, I thought the setting was really interesting. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. So part of the reason I read it when I was younger is because my family is from South Carolina, from a very tiny town, very much 
in the same vein of like it's very committed to its history there are flags i remember i actually visited for christmas my grandparents and i remember driving past a massive cotton field i've never seen anything like that but i was just like oh wow that's where i am uh-huh. that's where i am and it was just so crazy so i remember reading it when i was younger and i was really really drawn to that aspect of it i was like oh this is familiar to me i know a place like this and it it felt really like and i think it's hard cuz i grew up in brooklyn and new york and it's like when people i try to con- like explain to people that setting of where i'm visiting when i'm seeing family they're like what are you even talking about and i'm like y'all don't get it like it's so particular there's like this weirdo energy <laughs> that is hard to explain and this book just got it where i was like oh yeah this is the weirdo energy i'm talking about and it's why i've always been super drawn to the genre of so- southern gothic anyway because i just think i'm like people want to reduce the south to a lot of things particularly like the the racial aspects or the uh like the political aspects of it all but i'm like no there's there's this weirdo energy and not everyone thinks the same but it, it like the whole there being witches i'm like i could believe that down south i'm like that seems real and so i was just so into it and rereading it now i think about i'm like absorbing this like idea of like this they're like the war of northern aggression stuff like that and i'm like yeah I, like i i can't believe like it almost feels prophetic yeah. a little bit mm-hmm. <laughs> like i'm like oh they wrote that in 2009 like like this kind of thought it was like there for such a long time and then only now where like crt and everything is like just in the like public zeitgeist of like conversation it's like being brought to the surface like people are addressing it now and it's so crazy to me like i'm just like oh wow (laughs) like this is we've been talking about this and dealing with this for so long yeah i also wonder like to what extent the authors when they were writing this book in like 2008 2009 were yes acknowledging that this is like how certain communities still teach the civil war but we're also like, it was kind of tongue in cheek, like LOL, LOL yes. readers, it's like, especially to adult readers and like a lot of adults read YA and were reading YA in 2009. And so I was thinking about the fact that like, they probably were thinking, oh, people are going to read this and be like, this is hilarious. Like the fact that these people in South Carolina are teaching this history to their kids as the war of Northern aggression, like what a joke. And I sitting here now agree, but I like to think that when they were writing this book, like maybe the authors imagined that if people like us were reading the book in 2023, we'd be like, oh yeah, like good thing we figured that out. Like good thing we moved past that. And it was almost built a little bit as a joke. And as you said, like it ended up to a lot of people being very much not a joke. And a lot of people have doubled down. Yeah, and the the thing is, is that when reading the book, I was like sitting there, I was like, this feels like not a fair or like I not, maybe fair is not the right word. It just felt like a really weird depiction to me because I was like, how is Ethan the only person? And that that is that is like, oh, this is wrong, but also not really committed to the idea that it's wrong. Like it feels very surface level. Like there's so much that could be talked about in the book, like about the way that they teach history 
that it just feels surface level but if they really wanted to dissect that the authors they would have addressed like for example the fact that Alma is black mm-hmm. and that the, like she would theoretically have a huge issue with so much of what's being taught and said around her but they bring it to like this surface level of like oh Alma just doesn't like these other these white housewives and i'm like uh i don't they're they're part of like the this like organization that glorifies the confederacy i don't think it's just because they're unpleasant and so i just was like wait wait there's so much of that i was just like okay <laughs> like so much of the book where i was like you're almost there you're almost getting it you're so close but like not really that's such a good point like for a book that makes so much of like civil war history and civil war education or miseducation as a backdrop race is made like race is discussed almost not at all exactly i mean it's it's much more like ethan this white kid who like sees that something wrong is happening like he's the one who's valorized as like this is the one boy who knows that this is wrong Whereas I'm sure that in addition to Ama, like there are other people in this community who are not white and could perhaps like be a more experienced voice on this topic and not Ethan, who's just like, I need to get out of here. Yeah, he just is like, everybody is so dumb. And I'm like, true king, but also... And like relatable. Like I do think that 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 trope is something like so many teens can relate to, even if they're not from a small town in the South, even if their angst when they were growing up had nothing to do with local history and was just about like I need to leave like every person that I know had a moment when they were teenagers of like my dreams are bigger than this place and yes (laughs) so I think that they were smart in keying into that and making that a huge driver for Ethan I did want to I mean there were so many quotes I I will say like my biggest frustration with this book I think in terms of where I think there could have been some editing done and Joelle I'd love your thoughts on this like there was so much of this like repetitive line of like in Gatlin dot dot dot. Like, yes, here yes, in Gatlin, yes, like yes. this is how things are in Gatlin. Like this is how it had always been in Gatlin, and it just was like okay, like I get it. Like this is how Gatlin is, and it is annoying to you, Ethan. It just it was like a lot, and I feel like it was pretty repetitive. So there were a lot of quotes that I could have pulled out to like really typify Ethan's experience as, you know, the way he perceives himself to be this like different kind of guy. But he says, I didn't want to end up like my dad living in the same house in the same small town I'd grown up in with the same people who had never dreamed their way out of here. And then of course he ends up courting this girl named Lena who has a very strong not like other girls vibe. And he describes her this way. She was a freak because she wasn't from Gatlin, because she wasn't scrambling to make it onto the cheer squad, because she hadn't given him a second look or even a first Like, it's just very much about, like, this is what Gatlin is, and everybody who's not from Gatlin is the opposite. I feel like they did a lot of that in the book, and it works for Ethan's character because, yes, like, he's very driven to get out, and he has this this really difficult, like, family situation. His mom has recently passed away, and his dad is clearly going through it with his mental health and is, like, locked up in his office. And, yes, fine. Like, I get the angst. It all makes sense. Like, I had some of that angst when I was a teenager, But there's like the sort of micro level angst of Ethan that I understand. But then it felt like there's this like more macro angst of like, but let's talk about how things are in Gatlin. Yes. It just was like a lot. (laughs) And it it went on so long. Like I was like in in the beginning, I was like, yeah, yeah, you're setting the scene. 
But like I was getting towards the end and there was still a more in Gatlin. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, we're still here? We know. Like I know Gatlin. I've been in I've been in Gatlin for 600 pages. Like I, I feel like I, I got it. I feel like I noticed it the most right when Lena turned 16 and he was talking about the Civil War enactment that was just about to happen. Right. And then I had to pause the audiobook because I swore that he had just, maybe a chapter ago, talked about exactly what was going to happen in the Civil War enactment and why people were the way they were in Gatlin. And I went back and he did. And I was like, yeah. you just told us. Like, I get it. You hate it. <laughs> like, it's fine. Right, like I too hate it. I I don't blame you, Ethan. You are right. You don't have to prove it to me. I feel like the authors really enjoyed writing about the place and they loved setting the scene. And I don't blame them because I, I think that they did a really great job with it. And I I think part of the reason that I liked the book, quite frankly, more than I thought that I would was because of the sense of place. But then nobody asked them to rein it in and they just like kept going. <laughs> yeah, and I think that like pay that's why it's so long yeah there's other parts of why i'm like oh this is really long like the way he continues to describe lena i was like what like just the and he i liked ethan but also didn't like him i don't know if that makes sense there were like tell me more tell me more i just i enjoyed how he drove like the action like I was like, oh, you were an active protagonist. You were doing things. I was really about it. I, he wasn't stupid. I think a lot of times authors will let their main characters be stupid because they are like, let's pause the let's pause the tension. Let's pause the plot. We need some development in other areas. But no, he was always active. He was always moving, doing things. And I loved that about him. But then also the way he just talked about the people around him just felt so mean. And it like beyond the like, aspects of oh my education's not great and this that and the third just the way he like talked about some of his classmates I was like you're just mean like his basketball team I was like why are you slut shaming them because they're like oh that girl's real pretty what are you doing they're not even doing anything wrong they're just like oh I really like girls okay so do you except you're just obsessed with that one girl that doesn't make you better right and the girl that you're obsessed with just isn't a cheerleader yeah, I was like, oh, she's different. Like, they're, like, really into girls. And I was like, that was different for me. I was like, whoa, we're just slut-shaming our bros? Like, why are we doing this? And there was a lot of slut-shaming, I felt, of the girls around him, too. Like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of conversation about, like, the short skirts. And, I mean, not in so many words, but it was this sense of, like, these stupid girls are basically, like, asking for this kind of attention from guys. And because Lena doesn't behave that way, she is inherently different. Yeah. And I do think it perpetuates this idea of, like, this is a, quote, good girl and this is a bad girl. And... I would imagine that if they wrote this book today, the authors might approach some of those descriptions differently. I think so. I think it's such a, a moment of the time where it was like everybody wanted to be the the girl that wasn't like other girls. Yeah. And so it was. it's just such a product of its time. I see that so clearly. Like I was like sitting there thinking about it. I was like, huh. Even the way that like Ridley is described, her cousin. Oh, uh, yeah, totally. Whom I, first of all, I loved her character. I remember watching her in the movie and thinking she was so cool. I just was like really bummed by this weird, like, even her power of being a siren. I was like, her sexuality is attached to her, like, morality. And I just hated that. I was like, that is such a bummer. Yeah. 
why are we doing this? And I think she's one of the more complex characters too. So that really bummed me out that she was reduced to that. And especially when I was like, I feel like we don't even get that much complexity out of Alina, which who is the main, the other main character. So I was like, okay, I wish that we, we could have used less of that mm. of Ethan being like really so gross. But hot. <laughs> and more on other things. <laughs> yeah, gross but hot. Which I was like, that's crazy that you're continuously contextualizing your girlfriend's cousin this way. Like, where, where, what are you doing, sir? Like, also your best friend's girlfriend. Like, whoa. Yes, totally. Exactly. Yeah. I wish that there had been more nuance in the way that he described the girls around him. And I want, you mentioned this earlier, Joelle, but like it is pretty rare and I think it's become lesser over time, but certainly in 2009, it was very rare for us to get a male narrator in YA like that was pretty unusual and I wonder if it was a function a little bit of like I don't know it feels a little bit like yeah like (laughs) guys think girls are hot and like comment on their bodies and their short skirts and I mean that's the sauce that we've all been swimming in forever and so I I almost can't like blame the authors for leaning on that a little bit in 2009 like they did not grow up as far as I know as teenage boys. And so like maybe that's just kind of what they were conditioned to assume a 16-year-old boy narrator might say. But of course we expect more in 2023 and I wish that we had the opportunity to like, I don't know, get to know a little bit more about the girls. It just felt like all of the girls were either terrible and tacky and slutty or Lena. Yes. Basically. And then all of the grown-ups, like all the women were also horrible. Like the more I think about it, like there's just not a lot of positive femininity in this book. It's like nah. sluts, DAR women, like total Karens who are like trying to get Lena kicked out of school. Lena's witch cousins and, and relatives who are like kind of nice, but also kind of shady. Marion, who is his mom's best friend, who is cool, but like also keeps secrets. And then Ama, who, as you said, like, I mean, she's a great character and she's like way smarter than anybody else in this book. But like, she's also like kind of a pain in Ethan's ass, you know, like there just aren't a lot of like, yeah, there aren't that many likable women in this world. Yeah. And even the treatment of Alma, like, I don't know, it freaked me out that she was a black woman. (laughs) It really, really did. And I remember watching it and like not processing it because I mean, it's Viola Davis in the movie whom I love, but also reading it, I was like, why first of all the audiobook you didn't listen to it but she has a very odd accent oh no <laughs> yeah it felt very racial oh, and i was like whoa why like, whoa. why so unnecessary yeah, I was like, why did unnecessary i was like aren't they all from the south chill like they can all have the same accent yeah it was just so like she felt very mammy-ish to me mm. like i was like why is your nanny black yeah and why did she raise your dad too like it's giving generational and i didn't like that i was like ooh, le- no that's interesting no, weird and i just remember like I-, I was like she's given up a lot for this white family where is her family mind you they were like oh she goes home to her family so she has a family right i they, that i noted that and i was like who are they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what is her interior life? Is it just about Ethan? Some random boy that she's raising? Weird. I didn't like it. I was like, I don't, 
why are you here? I need you to live your own life, Alma, and not be here. Yeah, there are some weird undertones in this book, generally, like just about gender and race and sex and all of that. So I'm glad that we are laying all of that out because it is um, it's a lot of it didn't quite sit right with me. And I think talking about it with you has helped me understand a little bit more why because I, I think I thought it was all in my head because I was like, am I just like not getting this? But yeah, there were some things that were funky. And I think Ethan is a complicated narrator. I think there were a lot of things about him that felt relatable. But it's like he's so pissed about living where he lives. But at the same time, he's like complicit in all these structures. Like he still plays basketball. Like, yeah, you are still like by all accounts at the beginning of the book, like kind of a cool dude, like hanging out with the dudes that you end up saying are horrible. So yeah, it's just there's a little bit of hypocrisy and like who among us has not been a hypocrite at some point, especially when we're teenagers. But uh, it made it hard to fully buy into his just like full on hatred of his community. It felt a little bit performative. And again, like acknowledging that he's just been through this great loss. He's dealing with some stuff. He has no relationship with his dad, really. He's lonely. And now when we meet him, he's having these really intense dreams about like falling through the air with a girl who he doesn't know. He starts hearing this mysterious song about 16 moons. I loved the call to the iPod, by the way, like love an iPod, miss my iPod. Okay, I love, I love <laughs> when there are, like, markers. I know some people think that it, like, makes it, like, they don't like it when, it, like, there are old references or dates a work. I love it. Like, I remember, I, as soon as I said, I was like, I had a green iPod Nano. Like, it was just, like, popped into my head. I haven't thought about it in forever, but it just made me so happy. Like, I was like, oh, this is nice. Nobody has an iPhone. There are no smartphones. <laughs> This is it. No, I mean, there's nothing like an iPod, like that click that it would make when you would run your finger around the yes. circle. Ugh. I loved it. My heart. Yeah, I love that he had his iPod. So yeah, he has a couple of things going on when we meet him. He's just lost his mom. He's having these dreams. And then all of a sudden, this girl shows up in school who happens to look a lot like the girl in his dreams. And this is Lena. She is the niece of this like creepy guy. Everybody thinks he's creepy. There are references to Boo Radley from To Kill a Mockingbird, which, you know, a whole other set of problems. And so everybody's like, ooh, like she's also a member of this creepy family. What could it mean? She drives around in a hearse. So yeah, like all of these markers of just something shady and dark going on. What did you think about Lena when she showed up at school and when Ethan begins to just become obsessed with her? Um, I actually really like Lena. I wish I, I kind of sometimes wish that the book had been in her POV. Yeah, totally. I think she's like a really, really interesting character in a lot of ways. The the thing is, is that she doesn't think that she's not like other girls. Mm. He does. Oh yeah. And I find I find that so fascinating. She's very like I want to go to prom. I want to have a normal experience. I kind of like. She at first she's like. The cheerleaders don't seem so bad. Like, she just wants to be in school. She just wants to be there. And I really, like, admire that in a character who is not so, like, I, it felt different. She felt different, and I really liked her. Yeah, I just find I found her so fun. And I liked the way that she kind of, like, wasn't so interested in him. Like, she was very, like, eh. <laughs> like, she was like, I don't need your help. And he was, like, very pursuing, and she was like, okay. And I thought that was fun. You just kind of blew my mind with that description of her as somebody who, for her, it's not about being not like other girls. Like, she does not find her self-esteem from being in opposition to these people. She, in fact, would like to be more like these other people, or she would at least like to be accepted 
and loved. Like she's looking for love. She's looking for friends. She and Ethan kind of have these very opposite experiences. It's very much like grass is always greener situation where she's moved around to all of these different places. And Ethan, who's like so sulky about having been in Gatlin his whole life, is like, wow, like you're so lucky. You must have seen so many amazing things. And Lena is like, no, but I kind of wish that I had roots the way that you do, even if it's in Gatlin. And you know how things are in Gatlin, because I certainly do after I read this book. Yeah, I mean, she wants what these other people have. Her self-esteem is not tied up in being different. It's almost as though like Ethan's self-esteem by midway through the book becomes tied up in being with somebody who is in opposition to these other people. But that's not where she's coming from. Yeah. No, and I I feel like that came through so clear and like when she was particularly when she wanted to go to the winter dance yes like she just wanted like he was shocked that she wanted to go and i was like why are you shocked this whole time she has just really wanted to be normal and accepted and not be called out for who her family is she just wants to be there she wants to go to school like like at a certain point he's like i don't know why she wants to go to school she's like i just want to learn i just want to be here and i thought that there was such a sweetness to that yeah i just found her to be a very sweet character i also loved the plot line about her just love for being in school because toward the end of the book there's this whole movement where the moms of Gatlin are trying to get Lena kicked out because to be fair, all of these weird things have started happening since she showed up. Like she can't quite control the powers that we ultimately find out that she has. And so she shatters glass. All of these like weird events happen after she is completely bullied by the mean girls at the dance. So the moms decide that like she needs to go and she is afraid. And there is a line about how um, like to everybody else here, school is like prison and to Lena, school was freedom. And I thought that that was, that line is like actually so resonant in a very real grounded way because like not to get too real world or big picture about it, but like that's a good reminder for all of us because there are a lot of people in the world who don't have the opportunity to go to school. And so I think- Exactly. I, I hope that high schoolers reading this book like maybe had a little moment of a gut check of like, oh right, like there are people who would find freedom in this opportunity to do the thing that I hate doing every day. So I, I really appreciated that moment of perspective. Yeah, I just thought it was so real. And it, I think that's part of what like really shaped who she was for me. Like I was like, okay, this is a girl who happens to be a caster. I don't know. I think a lot of times in in fiction, like what you are or like whatever creature you are becomes like the focus of your personality. And that wasn't her. It was like, she happens to be this thing. But she is also like so many other things too. And I really liked that. And I also liked how she personally never defined herself as Ethan's girlfriend, as Ethan defined himself as her boyfriend. Like that became his personality at a certain point where he was like, like towards the end where he's like, if I lose her, I'd die. And I'm like, oh my God, you're like 16, King. Like, relax. You're a sophomore. You have time. You've got time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's fine. And she never, ever did that. Like, she was always like, yeah, I want this personal freedom. Like, I want to be able, and you know, this is so funny. It reminded me of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Oh, interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen that show or read the graphic novel. I haven't, but I know of it. Yeah, so in that graphic novel and the TV show, it's like more satanic, weirdly enough, than original the 90s Sabrina. 
So basically, when you turn 16, you're claimed by Satan, and you sign your name in the in the book of Satan and stuff like that. And at the end of the first episode, she's like, my name is Sabrina Spellman, and I'm not going to sign that away. That's what Lena Duquesne reminds me of. I'm like, oh, she is like, I'm in possession of myself. Like, I belong to me. This is who I am. I happen to be a caster. I am not claimed by anything. These are the things I want. I want to go to school. I want to be a normal person. I want to have friends. And I want to not have to think about these life, this life or death situation that I did not ask for. And I want no part in. I think a lot of times chosen ones leap towards that. And she's very much like, no, like, I'm just trying to be regular. And I admire that. I like that. Yeah, especially because she is now in this close relationship with somebody who's like, ew, people who are regular are gross. And is yet like he is an extremely regular person. Yeah, it's just, which is so funny. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of self-esteem work to be had. Maybe he has that growth in the later books. I wouldn't know. I have not read them. It's a big commitment. It's a big commitment for us. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the magic. Now, we've kind of hinted a little bit at what's happening here with casters and claiming and all that stuff. But basically... Lena reveals that she's counting down to her 16th birthday because when she turns 16, as a caster, she will either be claimed by the light or the dark. So either like good magic or bad magic to be really simple about it. And she is scared because she does not, of course, want to be claimed by the dark and be bad. She wants to be good as so many of us do. And Ethan is just like, yeah, like, of course you'll be good. Like, yeah, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna claim you for the bad side. You're just amazing. And she's like, look, Ethan, like, I appreciate the kind words, but you don't get it. Like, Ethan just doesn't get so many things, which is hilarious to me. And it's a bigger family matter. Like, there are a couple of scenes throughout the book where we get to meet Lena's big caster family. And they all represent these different skills and powers, which is pretty cool. I liked all of that stuff. And they all have different opinions about what it means for Lena to be claimed and, like, what's at stake for her. And the cousins that have already been claimed, like, are kind of teasing her about it and what to expect as somebody who, it sounds like you were interested in witches and you're into like this kind of storytelling, what did you think about kind of like the basic magic system and of that part of the world building? Um, I thought it was fun, particularly when it was like, it's revealed later that Macon is dark, yeah. but is like, like it's it's not even, I liked it when it became like a not moral thing. Like it's not about morality. It's about the kind of skill that you have that I was really into. And I really liked how each person had focused powers. And I thought that that was really cool. And I thought that that was fun. And I really liked the idea of the moon and all of that. I didn't like the idea of a natural, Mm. what Lena is. I just didn't, I was like, you don't have any rules. And I don't like a magic system where one person it has is an exception to a rule. I'm like, I think you need rules. And it was like, she was like, I just don't know what, what I can do. I'm just a natural. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I need you to have a rule to your power. I need you to have a line. Because if you have a line, then I, it's too easy. If you, Then it gets like, I'm like, where's the imagination? How do you solve your problems if you're, if you're a natural at magic, if you don't have a problem? Well, it feels convenient from a plotting perspective. Yeah. And look, I get it. Like, I don't write fantasy. I don't write anything that involves this level of world building. And I can imagine that somebody who does, like, you probably get to points where you're like, fuck, like, I don't know what to do now that I've gotten to this point because I built this whole world. And now in order to make what I want happen, happen, I'm going to have to, like, go back on this whole thing. So you're like, you know what? 
we're going to break the rules with this one character. Like it, I understand it from like a practical writing perspective, Mm -hmm. but as a reader, it can be so frustrating for there to be these exceptions. As you said, they feel convenient. And there were a couple of moments in this book where I felt that way, where I was like, okay, like that made things a little bit easier writing wise. Yeah. And I just, and maybe I would think teen readers not to, not to um, insult them in any way. But like, I think that those are probably things that I cared less about as a teen because it just didn't matter. But as an adult reader and as somebody who writes fiction, I'm like, okay, like that was convenient. Yeah. As a kid, didn't think about it. (laughs) Yeah. But older, I'm like, oh, wait, no, no. But I did gain an even bigger appreciation when I grew older, like now, for like how the world is structured in general in terms of the magic system. I'm like, the whole like morality being a part of it. I didn't really think about it that way when I was younger. The fact that morality isn't what's dictating darker light as you get old, when I'm now that I'm older, I really like that. I think it adds a whole extra layer of nuance and complexity to everything. And I like how the, it's like kind of explains, like I think that Lena it doesn't quite realize until later on. That, that that's not a moral thing that's happening, like getting claimed by light art or dark. I mean, for her, it's about like your family dies. But like in general, which I, I still am not clear about why that is by her family. Yeah. Was it the curse? I, I... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, in addition to like this whole magic system, listeners, there's this like sort of dual family history because Ethan and Lena find out that they are kind of like living lives parallel to their ancestors who also were kind of star-crossed lovers and Lena's foremother like traded in Ethan's forefather's life for like this magic that would then like go on to claim her like progeny I guess for like light or dark magic like it's very murky and it is this like sense of like these are the chosen families like these families were chosen to be involved in this but feels like very high stakes situation. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on here. And again, like I applaud the authors for putting together what I'm sure was like no small feat of world building. Mm-hmm. Like I can't imagine the hours that must have gone into just like hashing out the history and the magic and the geography of all of this. But that doesn't mean that there weren't some moments where I was like, but why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just, there were just certain parts where I was like, wait, and I was like, did I miss something? Yeah. But I mean, I also, I again, listening to an audiobook, I probably did. Yeah. Because I also listened on 1.75 speed. So. Yeah, I think this would be confusing on audio just because there's like so much going on. So I'm impressed that you listened to it on audio. Yeah, I was just like walking around, like, like wherever I went, headphones on, listening to beautiful creatures. But yeah, I, I'm into the magic in general. Certain parts of it, I was like, I'm confused, but I'm still into it. I particularly liked Macon's magic a lot. I was like, oh, the idea of like being an incubus but feeding on dreams is so cool. That I just thought that that was really cool. I didn't understand Alma's magic. I'm not clear on that, but maybe that's for another book. There's so much space to explain more. So, so much. Well, I liked the magic, but I also really liked the twists. Like I thought there were some really effective twists. As you said, the twist with Macon was really interesting how it turns out that he's dark, but not because of his morality, because of his powers. Mm -hmm. The twist with Link's mom, Mrs. Lincoln, actually being like this super dark caster who is Lena's mom, who's like trying to win her over. Like I did not see that coming in any way, shape or form. 
toward the end, there were a couple things where I was like, okay, like I, I am, I am impressed that you work this in there. Yeah. The foreshadowing was great in terms of Mrs. Lincoln. Like when she couldn't enter the house, like suddenly I was like, oh, she couldn't enter the house. Like there were small things where she was like really insistent with Ethan, where she was like trying to get him alone and separated. And it just felt like at the time she was just his best friend's pushy mom. Right. Like she was just being a weirdo, but like as she had been for the entire book. And he, he also was like, ah, she's just a freak. So like, yeah, it's fine. But then when it turns out that it's Serafina, I was like, oh, that's so great. Yeah, I had no idea. Like, total shock. Yeah, there were some really great... There's a lot of great groundwork laid out. I actually really liked the way that Ridley and Lena's, like, past relationship was laid out, how they were, like, very close, because you could still see remnants of it, despite the fact that they are no longer speaking. I really liked that. But yeah, there were, there were certain parts of the book that I was like, oh, that's great. I really like the way that personal relationships are shown. Yeah, and I thought that the core romance was really sweet, too. I mean, Ethan was, like, a little much and a little lovesick for her. But I think that there were a lot of moments where he's describing, like, the way he feels about her and, like, just what it feels like to him to look at her. Like, that's really what first love feels like. And so while this is, of course, happening in a very, like, ungrounded kind of world, I think that's probably what a lot of teenagers locked into about this book was those feelings of butterflies and like not really understanding what these feelings are and like it does really feel supernatural when you have those feelings for the first time so I thought that that was all really effective oh yeah the way that they started out as friends too like I felt they were genuine friends in the beginning which I don't think is like that doesn't you don't see that often and I think I I really loved that how it took them a while to be like, oh, we're together. Like, they were like, no, we are friends. We're hanging out. We're having a good time. Like, that was really sweet. I liked that. That they were friends first. Yeah, and his frustration of like, but what does it mean for us to be friends? Like, that all tracked for me and brought me back to mm-hmm. some relationships that I had when I was in high school, and I liked that a lot. On the whole, Joelle, we've talked about lots of different parts of this book. The good, the bad, the in-between, the murky parts that we're not sure about. How did this rereading experience compare to your memories of reading Beautiful Creatures for the first time back when you were 12? Did it hold up? Did it let you down? A little bit of a mixed bag? Kind of mixed. Okay. Because, again, like, the weird racial undertones, I did not remember. And I also don't think I had the brain processing power as well. Who did? (laughs) To, like, even, like, clock it. I was like, oh, this is just fun. Yeah. But I, I like genuinely enjoyed a lot, lots of parts of it. Like I was like, you know, I would read this again. I thought that the writing was strong. Like I was like, oh, I like the prose. Like, this is nice. I liked the ending, how it was like, oh, there was a question left, but you could also just stop if you wanted to. I think that's pretty hard to do. Yeah. I just, I had a good time reading it. I texted my friends throughout the entire time giving my entire reaction they were like I do not remember this (laughs) and I was like me neither like but this is so fun yeah and funny like this is hilarious to me Mm -hmm. oh well I'm glad you had at least fun reading it even if there were moments that were a little iffy I'm so glad that you encouraged me to read it finally for the first time (laughs) while I do think that a red pen at certain parts about like in Gatlin might have been effective and there were a couple of moments where I found myself skimming a little bit I generally liked it more than I thought that I would. So thank you so much for recommending it to me and getting it on our schedule. Other than Beautiful Creatures, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? Okay. I read like five books at once. I get it. So I am reading The Guest by Emma Klein. Okay. It's like a thriller, uh, but also not really. It's like really slowly paced for a thriller, 
but it's like in a way where you're like almost nauseous while you're reading it you're like oh god something bad is about to happen but i love that feeling like that like that brings me so much joy i'm also reading the queen charlotte book by shonda rhimes <laughs> nice. and i have not read a single bridgerton book i will read queen charlotte though i really liked that miniseries i don't know what else am i reading I'm reading a couple of other things, whereas I have all my books, like, next to me, actually. I'm reading this book called How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, Best Movie Year Ever, because I am researching for a novel that I'm writing right now, and it's about 1999, so reading that. So yeah, I'm reading quite a few things right now. Good little mix. Well, I will include links to those recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to Beautiful Creatures, and along with a link to your debut novel, Joelle. So as this episode drops on July 11th, we are two weeks out from the release of Their Vicious Games, which has been getting so much cool buzz. Like, I can't even imagine how excited you are. Congratulations. Tell us everything about Their Vicious Games. Okay, so Their Vicious Games is my debut novel, as you said. Yay! (laughs) Um, I wrote it in 2021? 2020? I don't know. It's a mix of Squid Game meets Ace of Spades meets The Bachelor, which I know is a crazy mix. And I know people are always like so confused when they get to that Bachelor part. And I'm like, no, no, I promise it works. It works. But um, it's about a girl named Medina Walker who gets kicked out from her top choice college and all other colleges because she gets into a physical fight with a very wealthy girl from her school. So she's like in her biggest flop era at the moment. And so she like creates this scheme in her own brain where she's like, okay, how do I get out of my flop era? I should enter this program called The Finish, which is, which to her, it is a competition of elite uh, young women who are about to go to college hosted by this family of Remingtons who basically founded the high school boarding school that she went to. And so she approaches the golden child, the second son. Yeah, the golden child is the second son. Crazy. (laughs) But named Pierce Maxwell Remington IV. And he invites her to the finish and she thinks that it's just going to be mental, like just a finishing school, basically etiquette, mental teasers, tests, stuff like that. But really it's death games Mm. and whoever wins the finish wins the hand of Pierce Maxwell Remington IV, which she does not want. But also when you become a Remington, you get the entire world. So yeah, that's my debut novel. It's a bit of a satire thriller YA that I had such a fun time writing. It sounds like it. Well, listeners, you have got to get your hands on a copy of Their Vicious Games. You can go ahead and pre-order it right now as this episode comes out. Pre-orders are awesome. And then in two weeks when it's on shelves, you can go get yourself a copy. So thank you so much for spending this time with us as we prepare for the release of your book. It was a lot of fun spending time with you, Joelle. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I had such a great time. I did too. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. 
Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.